I am Pastor Nathan, and today we are going to be looking at the fifth of the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. The letter to the church of Sardis, which is uh, commonly referred to as the dead church or the complacent church. And then after all of that, we're going to share in communion together today as we remember what God has done for us. And so hopefully you guys got your communion emblems as you came in today. If you're watching online, this would be a great opportunity to go get those and get ready. But one of the big issues that scripture deals with and talks a lot about is being able to know that you're a Christian, to have confidence in your salvation. You know, the entirety of 1 John was about this topic, and as we studied through that, we saw and learned, you know, what being saved is, what it means, what it looks like, and really what blessed me the most out of the book is how do you know for sure? How can you have absolute confidence in that? And the point there through 1 John was talking about, well, I, I believe I'm saved, but what happens when I sin again? What happens when I stumble? What happens when I, when I do something that, that I know I shouldn't, have, uh, shouldn't be doing? D- does that matter? How does that affect things? That's what 1 John was all about. But on the other side of that conversation, you have the question of what about those who go to church, carry a Bible, participate in the routine and the activities and the programs, but they have absolutely no changed life, no change in their manner of living, no new heart, no love for God, and no desire to obey him in in any way. Scripture also talks about that just because someone claims the title of Christian, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are. And people refer to this state that people can find themselves in as nominal Christianity, or a more familiar term might be Christian in name only. And it refers to people who live in such a way that when they're confronted with the discrepancy between their profession of faith and their living of faith, they're satisfied with their state. They're unconcerned with their condition and have no desire to change, and what they're in a state of is a state of complacency. There are many, unfortunately, who live this type of nominal Christianity in the world today, and there's many reasons that people might um, identify for that. One, um, sometimes people say it's just easy to, to live a nominal Christianity, right? You don't, don't have to change your life. <laughs> you don't have to live differently. I go to church, so I'm good. And yet they still live no differently than they did before they allegedly came to know Jesus. Some, it's because of their custom, their culture, their, their upbringing. You know, sometimes, especially youth, we can find ourselves saying, I'm a Christian, and, and, and I identify as a Christian, and, and I claim that because, well, that's how I was raised. Or, my parents were saved, therefore, I must be saved as well, despite evidence to the contrary. Some, it's a legalistic type of thing, where They identify that their Christianity is all about just changing the outside things, and that's all that matters. And for some, it's about conforming to standards. Again, for the youth sometimes, it's about conforming to standards that they feel are imposed upon them by their parents or others. But again, as Jesus pointed out with the Pharisees, no inner transformation, no difference in the heart. And so sadly in the world today, there are many churchgoers and rule keepers and bare minimers, minimumers that claim the, Christian of label, or claim the label of Christian but have no relationship with and no life from Christ. Why am I bringing all that up, right? We're preaching to the church today. You guys are here to hear from the Lord. Well, it's because this is what Jesus deals with in the letter to the church in Sardis. And so 
sorry, not sorry, right? Jesus said it, John recorded it, and as we're studying verse by verse through Revelation, this is what's next. But Jesus identified people there in that church who wore a Christian label, but Jesus saw the truth behind it all. Most importantly, what I hope we hear and learn today, and maybe there's some in this room or watching online that need this warning, is his warning to the church and all who would claim the name of Christ. That church attendance, participation in routines, activities and programs, while good, while healthy, while, while vital to our walk, are not the measuring stick of salvation. But rather, it's a changed life, a new heart, a love for God and a desire to obey him in his word that is the proof that one has indeed been regenerated. So substituting good deeds for saving faith and substituting compliance for conversion really does nothing in the picture of eternity and only leads to a nominal, complacent, dead Christianity. So Jesus' message to the church in Sardis that we're looking at today, the church then, and really his message to any church and any person living as a Christian in name only today, his message is wake up, repent before it's too late. Now that's a harsh message and a difficult message, but it's a necessary message because it is an issue in today's church. And so we're gonna be dealing with this uh, very directly and, and, and just looking at what he says. But before we get on to that, <laughs> we wanna spend some time worshiping God because we are here to hear from him and his word and to learn everything front to back, cover to cover on what he has to say and teach us. And we're so grateful for the opportunity to learn in his word and to gather together. And so we start that opportunity with praise. We just want to say, God, we love you so much because he's worthy. He's almighty. He's worth it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Even the difficult parts, Lord, because your word is faithful, it is true. It is what we need to hear, Lord. It is what the world needs to hear, God. And so, Lord, I pray today, God, as you speak to us, your church, Lord, those that are gathered here that know you as their children, we would again be reminded of how seriously you take, Lord, um, our faith walk, our life. Lord, I pray for any that are here today, young and old, that may be depending on their works, depending on their activity, depending on their routine to claim their salvation, depending on the faith of their parents or how they were raised, Lord, but all without a relationship with you personally, God. And I pray for those specifically today that they would hear your warning. Lord, that they would respond to your call to salvation and that they would be saved today, Lord. But God, we wanna start this with just remembering who you are. We wanna worship you as God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the creator of all things, Lord, the savior of our souls, Lord. And we say hallelujah, God because the love that you have for us truly is amazing. It is life-changing. And Lord, we pray that we would always and continually be transformed by the love of God and the truth of your word until we're with you face-to-face, God. Because you are holy, you are just. God, you're wonderful. So we thank you, Lord. We worship you now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, we are going to be in Revelation chapter three, verse one. And as I said earlier, this is one of those studies that's kind of difficult because um, it's really speaking towards those who don't know the Lord. And we're gathered here as the people who do know the Lord um, to hear from him. But 
it addresses a very real situation that happens in the church and is happening in the world today, and that situation is that there are people who think they know the Lord and they don't. And that's really what is taking place here. And so let's start by reading aloud the words of this prophecy, Revelation chapter three, verse one. He says, write to the angel of the church in Sardis. Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die, for I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you are not alert, I will come like a thief, and you have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes, and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and before the angels. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. As we've been, as we've been studying through these letters, I've pointed out a few times that, that these letters were written to specific real churches at the time uh, for specific issues, but they also have an application to us today in the church today. Um, I do personally believe that they also fit and, and represent certain area, eras in church history and whatnot, but they are prophetical. They are God's words to the church. And so we're gonna hear what it is he has to say. And so the, the problem in Sardis was a big one. Uh, the problem was more than just, hey guys, you're behaving wrongly, which is kind of what we've seen in some of the previous churches. Uh, the problem in Sardis is, hey church, you don't even know me, is what Jesus is getting at here. One of the first things you may notice about this letter to the church of Sardis is that Jesus has no commendation for this church. In every church so far, he has had something good to say about them. One church, he had nothing bad to say, but this one, he doesn't seem to have anything good to say about this church, only an acknowledgement that there are a few there who aren't playing church like the rest. Additionally, this letter is more harsh, it's more stern, it's more directly challenging than the others so far. And so um, I wanna look at the background of Sardis and, and see that how, how like the other churches, the city itself, the background, the historical context also helps us understand what was happening there. And, and then of course, I like pictures and archeology, span so you're gonna get some of that as well, okay? Uh, but Sardis was a city that was uh, south and slightly east of Thyatira. It was a very, very ancient and very important city there in Asia Minor. Sardis was a city, a metropolis really, that had been consistently occupied for about 3,500 years. And it had existed through Lydian influence and Hellenistic influence and Roman influence. And so the picture you see there is really what it looks like today. There's a, a bunch of ruins there, which is kind of interesting. But this next pic is an artist's rendition of what it looked like at the time of its heyday. It was a huge city, very, very huge city. And although existing Way back, Sardis was best known as the capital of the Lydian Empire in the 7th century BC. It eventually became part of the kingdom of Pergamum and then eventually became part of the Roman Empire in 133 BC. But if you travel there today, there's a very small village there named Sart that you can visit um, if you wanna go, and uh, I desperately wanna go see these places, so. 
But due to the close proximity of Sardis to the Pactolus River and the gold dust that was found inside this river, in addition to the very fertile farmland that surrounded the city, it was a very, very rich place in antiquity. Lots of wealth, lots of money. Um, in fact, it was a, it's famously known, Sardis, as the place where coinage was invented, coins where gold and silver were first minted into coins and used as currency. It happened in the city of Sardis during the Lydian Empire. Now this place had like many big towns of the time. It had a gymnasium and a public bath. You can actually visit the um, restored remains of this gymnasium and public bath today. That's a pic of what you would see today if you went to visit it. This next, next pic is a picture of what it looked like in its heyday. Um, it had a theater that could seat 20,000 people, um, a stadium for chariot races that can seat 12,000. It had an aqueduct. It had three temples to Roman emperors. So it was one of those neocoroses, one of those cities that were blessed with the honor of having a temple to the worship of the emperors. It had a very large temple to Artemis or Diana. And that, again, there's remains of that today. That's an overhead shot. But just to give you a reference of how big this thing was, that's people standing next to the pillars. So it's actually just a really huge temple that during Roman times, they actually split it in half. So that half of it was for worshiping Artemis and the other half was for worshiping the imperial Roman cult. And so although this temple was uh, uh, thought to be in consistently used and occupied for about 800 years, the construction of the temple was never fully completed. Now Sardis as a city was also known for a few other things. Um, they were famous for wool production. They, they made rugs and carpet and clothing. It was a really huge industry there. They were also known for a very large, seemingly impenetrable acropolis that was up on the hill. You see that hill in the very background of that picture there? There was a big acropolis, a big fortress, a big citadel up there that was considered impenetrable and it was set up on that mountain called Mount Tamolis. And so that citadel served as the... Um, the protection for the major highway junction that met there in Sardis. There were five major highways that met in Sardis, so it was a major center of trade, and it was considered the gateway to the east. If you wanted to travel further east through Turkey, if you were coming from Ephesus or Smyrna or any of the other cities, you actually had to go through Sardis to get there. And so this, this Acropolis that was up on that hill, hill gave the citizens of that place a very strong sense of security, a very strong sense of safety, which was false, as we will see later. The third thing Sardis was known for was it didn't just have a neat Acropolis, but it was also known as a Necropolis. Um, it was called the Cemetery of 1,000 Hills because seven miles north of the city, um, and you can actually go and visit those today, there were huge burial mounds that were filled with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tombs. So that's the background of Sardis as a city, right? Now the major issue in Sardis at the time of Revelation was it was a town full of people that were resting and relying on the works and the efforts of its predecessors. Its greatest moments were in the past. Its greatest accomplishments were in the past. And the people there were just kind of living on those coattails. They were just existing in the glories of what had already been. And the identity of the people in Sardis rested on what those who came before them accomplished. And thus they had a life of everything's fine. Everything's fine. Nothing's, nothing's, nothing's amiss. Well, the only thing that they were actually growing and increasing were the many tombs in the Acropolis. And so, as for the church that existed there, what we see in this letter is that most, 
Most of the people there in Sardis that claimed to be Christians were that way for reasons other than a relationship with Jesus. They were that way because, well, my parents were saved, therefore I must be a Christian. They were that way because they're like, well, I go to the church, I must be saved. And we're gonna see that Jesus points out the falseness of that. But their faith was something without life. Their faith, their Christianity, right? You might say, quotes, Christianity, (laughs) was something that was just dead. They were clocking in and out. They were just going through the motions, thinking everything was okay when it wasn't. And so it's to this church that he writes in verse one of chapter three. Write to the angel of the church in Sardis. Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. As he does with each one of these letters in Revelation, he borrows from the vision that he gave John in chapter one. And so here he introduces himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And so the piece of the vision that he borrows each time to introduce himself to the particular church, as you guys have noticed through the previous letters, deals specifically with the issue, the struggle that's happening in that church. It speaks to the issue, it also speaks to possibly the solution, and it ties directly into what is needed by that church. Now when he says the seven stars, um, we saw in chapter one of Revelation, it actually told us that those seven stars that are in the hand of Jesus are the seven angels of the churches, right? And that could be an actual heavenly angel that kind of was responsible for that church. It could refer to the pastors or the leaders because the word angel just means messenger. And so, but it does give us that picture again where Jesus is saying, look, the, the, the messengers in the churches, the leaders in the churches, the, even the angels over those churches, I hold them in my hand. I have control. I'm aware. But then he says this interesting phrase, seven spirits of God. Now, if you have a different translation of the Bible, it might say sevenfold spirit of God. But what is that? Seven spirits of God. Well, if you go back to Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, you'll see as John is introducing um, uh, God in this letter here, he says that grace and peace come from the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. Then he says, the seven spirits before the throne, and then he says, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. That's a picture of the Trinity. It's a picture of the Godhead. It's a picture of the the three pieces of the Trinity, if you will, that represent God himself. In Revelation chapter four, verse five, it tells us that the seven spirits of God, um, it it shows them symbolized as seven burning lamps before God's throne. And again, we'll deal with that when we get there, but this whole book is full of interesting symbolism and metaphor, but that is a reference back to Zechariah chapter four, verse two, where Zechariah is given a vision of the Holy Spirit, and in that vision, he sees the Holy Spirit as a solid gold lampstand with a bowl and, and topped with seven lamps. Then in Revelation chapter five, verse six, it tells us again that the seven spirits of God are the seven eyes of the lamb sent out to the church. And a picture of God's um, omnipresence, a picture of God's omniscience. But what's interesting is in the Gospel of John, it tells us that Jesus is the one who sends out the spirit of God. And then in Isaiah chapter 11, verse two, we see this sevenfold issue, right? Isaiah 11, two, it says, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, sevenfold spirit of God. 
So the seven spirits of God here, it's the Holy Spirit. It's a reference to the Holy Spirit of God. And that whole concept of seven we talked about before is a biblical representation of completeness. So the seven spirits of God or the sevenfold spirit of God, it's referring to the complete fullness of the Holy Spirit. And so again, Jesus is like, hey, I'm the one who has that. I'm the one who sends that. I'm the one who, who works with that. And so, but he opens his letter with this to this church that has a dead faith to this church that claims Christianity but, but doesn't know God at all. And he opens up saying, look, I'm the one that has the spirit you need. Because the cure to spiritual complacency, the cure to a dead and lifeless faith is an infusing of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That's what we need. That's what you need as an individual, that's what churches need. I read a poem by a British author and it said, a city full of churches, great preachers, lettered men, grand music, choirs and organs, if all these fail, what then? Good works eager, honest who labor hour by hour, but where, oh where, my brother, is God's almighty power? Refinement, education, they want the very best. Their plans and schemes are perfect. They give themselves no rest. They get the best talent. They try their uttermost, but what they need, my brother, is God, the Holy Ghost. You know, many churches today are challenged with the temptation. We need better methods. We need better strategies. We need to, to bring in some experts to give us strategic plans and, and, and all of that. Now, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of making goals and, and all of that type of stuff, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But, but in the big picture, we don't need better methods as a church. We don't need a strategic plan. We don't need seminars and all that. What we need is men and women filled with the Holy Spirit. That is what the church needs today. Men and women that are filled with the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, using the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given them to carry forth the gospel and the work of the ministry. And that's what this church needed. And so he goes on to say, look, I know your works. And you might think, oh, okay, cool. There's something good going on there. <laughs> what does he say? You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Be alert, he says, and strengthen what remains, which is about to die, for I have not found your works complete before my God. You know that phrase, I know your works, it's like every other church he says it to. The idea there is that, that Jesus knows everything we do. He knows everything we are. He knows every motivation and every reason behind what we do, including our um, Christian activity. He knows the heart behind it. He is not fooled. Nobody is fooling God when it comes to their living for him. He knows us. He sees all of it. And he really gives two reasons here why the, why the church at Sardis was the way they were. But first, I do want to point out a, a, an important point here. But if a church is complacent or dead, um, it's because it's made up of complacent or dead people, okay? Now, I do wanna say this before we move forward. I don't believe Hosanna's dead. I believe Hosanna is alive. We, we just, yeah, I don't wanna come off here like I'm like, you know, shame, shame. no, 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 we're just looking at the word here, but, but, but I am so blessed with, with what this church accomplishes and, and what we do and how you guys pull together to support one another and, and, and just the outreaches and it's just, it's exciting, it's really exciting to see the, the faith, the living faith here at Hosanna as so many of you live to just serve and please God. But I would be, um, 
foolish to think that it's not possible that there's anybody here in our fellowship or watching online that maybe is living the way that um, the, Sardis, the church in Sardis was living. And so he says, I know everything, and he goes, I know your works, and you have a reputation for being alive. Jesus is alluding to their past, past accomplishments there. You have a reputation for being alive, and those past accomplishments are the things that contributed to them having this reputation. And so uh, I believe the first reason that the church in Sardis was the way it was, that it had this reputation for being alive but was dead, was because they relied on their past successes. They relied on the past um, uh, past accomplishments. Um, it's the idea of like, oh my gosh, I remember when this church and movement started, right? Wow, it was so amazing, right? And, and, and Calvaries are kind of dealing with a little bit of that, that, that nostalgic look right now with the Jesus revolution that just came out. I don't know if you've seen it yet. Go see it if you haven't. Radically encouraging. I mean, really exciting to see where Calvary Chapels came from. And, and Calvary Chapel is not the only church that God is moving through, right? And there's, it's just exciting, though, to look back and to see these things. But sometimes you get caught up in the, the, the nostalgia of it. And there's so many wonderful stories. And oh my gosh, there were so many wonderful things that happened back then. Well, well I go to that church. So that must mean I'm a Christian. And that's the problem. That's the problem. Even though I have no personal relationship with Jesus, I go to that church that had that experience in the past, that has that history. I believe any church organizationally that stops operating in the leading in the power of the Holy Spirit and tries to coast on its past successes with ministry or outreach is doomed to die. I think that's a picture the, the Lord paints, you know? I am so thankful for the legacy and the history we have here at Hosanna and the, the work and the foundation that Pastor Gary laid and, and to this day, he'll tell you, if you're not trusting the spirit, <laughs> what are you doing, <laughs> right? And that's the example we follow here at our church, you know, but we're gonna keep moving forward and we have to keep moving forward as the spirit leads, right? Because we can't ever be a church or a people that's like, oh, this was great way back then, so we're just gonna keep doing it that way. And that's why we constantly introduce new music in our worship repertoire, right? We do have songs that are great songs from way back and we do those still, but we don't just only do, you know, oh gosh, the Maranatha stuff is so wonderful, why don't we only do those songs? Well, they are wonderful, but there's also stuff today that's wonderful. And God is doing a fresh work constantly through our lives. And so as a church, we move forward in worship and we move forward in methods. And, and hey, we're going to live stream, right? We keep moving so that we can keep accomplishing what God wants us to do. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong, like I said, with remembering the past, right? In fact, in verse 3, part of the solution to the issue at Sardis, he says, remember then, so we're gonna look at that when we get there, but if the measure of our spiritual life and the measure of our spiritual health and the measure of our spiritual walk today is based upon what others did way back then and not based upon what he is doing with me today, then we're in danger of the fate of the church of Sardis. Second reason I believe the church was the way it was is not just that they relied on past successes, but their spiritual life was superficial and empty. Right, he goes on to say, I have not found your works complete before my God. That phrase is important, before my God. You see, because the issue there is they had a reputation. Their works may have looked complete to the world. The people outside the church, the people who have nothing to do with Jesus and everything, what they saw is, wow, your works are complete. You guys are so awesome, it's so wonderful. But God's going, no, they're, they're, no. That's not the case. Now that word complete there means fulfilling the requirement or expectation. 
So their Christianity was not fulfilling the requirement or the expectation of Christianity, is what he's saying here. And that's the whole word. That's the whole counsel of God's word. Front to back, what God's word has to teach and say about every issue of life. There's a complete revelation. There's a fullness there that God reveals to us in his word. And one of the things that's happening today more and more, and it's happened throughout all the ages, I'm sure, is people pick and choose which parts of the Bible they want to listen to. And they go, well, that part I don't like, so I'm going to start saying, well, that word didn't exist in the time. And, and, and they find ways to twist the truth of God's word to justify living contrary to God's word. But then they'll go to this part of the Bible and go, oh, yeah, that's wonderful. I accept that completely. And it's incomplete. Today, we see that all over the place, right? God is love. Yes, God is love. God's word says that. So we're going to tolerate all manner of sexual sin and alternate lifestyles, and we're going to ignore biblical teaching that, that is contrary to what we want to live. Incomplete. Incomplete. Yes, God is love, but sin is sin. And God's word teaches us what that is. And so when God says sin is sin and calls us out of sin, we can't go, well, God is love. I'm going to accept that, but I'm going to reject this part of his word. When we accept all of it, it's complete. And so although the world saw the works, the Christianity of what Sardis was doing, and they would look at that and go, oh, that's what Christians should be. God did not see it that way. And so their faith, the, mem- the faith of the members of this particular church was superficial and dead. Now, I want to camp on that word dead for a minute here because it really, for me, is the key to understanding this letter. That word dead there is the Greek word that refers to spiritually dead. It's not referring to physical death. It's the word used for spiritual death or to represent somebody whose spirit is not alive. Or to put it another way, you have not been born again, you are not saved, you don't know Jesus Christ. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. He says, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. And in that deadness, they were content with their reputation before the world. They were content. Oh, you know, the people outside the church who don't know anything about Jesus, they think we're so alive because look how inclusive we are. They think we're so, um, you know, just, just vibrant spiritually because, gosh, they agree with everything we're doing. But the reputation before God was exactly the opposite. And so what God is saying, he's like, look, the world loves you, but I don't know you. And that should ring familiar because God said something like that in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus speaking. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do works? Didn't we prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? And then I will announce to them what? I never knew you. I never knew you, and he says, depart from me, you lawbreakers. That's a heavy verse. It's one of those verses that I think for all of us, at least we should look at that and always go, okay, God, am I, am I, am I being faithful to you? Am I trusting in you alone for my salvation? Am I, am I, am I in that place where, where it's you and nothing else? It, it's just, it's a cause for evaluation. 
Because Jesus, he's like, look, the world sees your lopsided picking and choosing Christianity, and they love it. The world looks at it and says, oh, you have this great reputation for being such wonderfully spiritual people. The world looks at it and says, why can't all Christians be like you? And God is saying to this church, that's not Christianity at all. It's something else, it's something twisted, it's something dead. It's something rotting just like the tombs that Sardis is known for. They were more concerned in this church with what everybody else thought about them and not enough concerned with what God thought about them. And because they were so worried with what the world thought about them, they twisted God's word. They ignored parts of it. They stopped preaching sin and judgment along with forgiveness and acceptance because and, after all, we're progressive now and we're enlightened and we're learned and you know, come on, we've advanced past the, the, the stodgy exclusivity of our parents now and yeah, it was great what happened back then but and as a result of that, salvation lost its meaning, it lost its purpose and the truth of it lost its power. The church and their Christianity had become something other than what it was supposed to be. It was changed to make people feel comfortable living in disobedience to God while still being able to claim the name and the reputation of being alive. And basically, this is the idea. If the unsaved world has great things to say about how you live out your Christian faith, you might not be doing it right. Or you might not be doing it biblically. Now, I don't mean that in 100%. Like, I, we want the world to look at us and go, wow, you're loving people, and wow, you care, right? But when it comes to our profession of who Jesus is and our stance for truth and righteousness, um, it should put us in an adversarial position. You know, Jesus said the world will hate you because of me, not love you. And so the church in Sardis, their spiritual life was being lived according to the world's standard and not God's, and the world loved them for it. And the church found comfort in it and continued in it. And so he goes on to give us the, the fix. How do you fix a dead or a complacent faith, right? <clears throat> well, in verse two, he says, be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die, for I have not found your works complete before my God. And he says, remember then what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you're not alert, I will come like a thief and you'll have no idea what hour I come upon you. How do you fix it? Be alert. This is rendered a different way in other translations. Wake up. That's how you fix deadness and complacency. Wake up. The idea there is being in a continuous readiness and alertness, like guards on a battlement, right? who are patrolling and they're just, they're, they're alert and they're ready. They're ready. It's an interesting idea here because that, that Acropolis, remember we talked about that Acropolis? There's still ruins for that, that you can actually go on top of that mountain and see these ruins of this Acropolis that were up there. And the reputation Sardis had in the ancient world was that it was the strongest place in the world because of that Acropolis, why? because on the edges of the Acropolis were almost sheer cliffs. No army could take the Acropolis. It was impossible to get up there. And so they took great pride in the fact that we are impenetrable, we're safe. But ironically, the citadel had been sacked twice in its history. 
And both times it was sacked due to feeling secure when they should have been woken up and alert. The first time is back in the Lydian Empire. The Lydian king Croesus, he built the citadel and he was very confident of how impenetrable it was. And so the Persian king Cyrus came and he came to sack the city and he realized, man, it's up on that hill. (laughs) How do we get up there? And he realized we can't sack the city. So what he did is he encircled his armies around the hill to to lay siege to the city, which was common in in battles of those times. And so one night, uh, there was a Persian soldier, as the story is told, looking up at the walls of the citadel, and he sees a guard at the top of the wall leaning over the wall, and his helmet falls off his head. And that Persian soldier is just watching, and he sees that guard disappear, and then he sees the guard come out of secret door at the base of the wall, walk out, go grab his helmet, go back in, close the secret door. Aha, we know how to get in now. And the soldiers exploited that weakness when the guards were a little bit lax because nobody's gonna come, nobody can take us, and the city was sacked. Very similar thing happened the second time. Um, I think it's Antiochus was the general that sacked the city, and again, they're like, we can't take it, it's up on the hill, it's impenetrable. But as the story is told that they saw vultures circling over one side of the city at one point, and they said, what are all those vultures doing over there? And so they sent some scouts and they saw um, Lydian soldiers, or not Lydian soldiers at the time, but the soldiers at the time, they were throwing dead bodies over the wall. And the uh, vultures were just, you know, having a buffet. But because that was so stinky and so gross, it was an unguarded section of the wall. And they went, aha, and it was sacked the second time. Ironically, in Roman times, they still thought, we're the strongest place in the world, except for two times. Nobody can take it. Maybe. Right? The idea there is because King Croesus thought he was safe when he wasn't. When he wasn't alert, the citadel was sacked, and Jesus is like, be alert, wake up. Because you think you are alive, you think you're safe behind your wall of reputation, but you are not. Just because the world goes, wow, look how spiritual you are. I don't know you. You don't have a personal relationship with me. You do stuff on the outside to look nice, but inside we know. God looks and says, we know. And he's saying, wake up. He goes on to say, strengthen what remains, which is about to die. This is possibly a reference to an earthquake that happened in Sardis in AD 17. Um, There was a major earthquake that leveled most of the city, including uh, the temple to Artemis, which I said was never complete and was never complete after. Um, But that word strengthen there means to become inwardly firm or committed to. Strengthen what remains which is about to die. I believe that what remained there and what is about to die is the message of the gospel, the truth of God. Strengthen that. Be fully committed to it. Stop with the half-truth living. Stop with the picking and choosing. Commit to all of it. Live all of it, not just the parts that the world is comfortable with. The world is super comfortable when we say, hey, we want to feed the hungry and feed, the, feed those. That, yeah, yes, yes, they love that. But as soon as we say, hey, Jesus has something to say about lifestyles we live in. Oh, why are you that way? 
when we dilute the truth to appease the world around us, it doesn't make our faith stronger. It doesn't make our witness more effective, it weakens it. And it only causes it to get progressively weaker and less effective the more we dilute it. Ultimately, it leads people to a false faith. Ultimately, it leads people to a place where there's no saving power of any kind, but they think they're good. They think they're okay. And so we effectively kill the message when we dilute the gospel. So verse three, he goes, remember then what you have received and heard and keep it. What was it that they had received and heard? The gospel. The truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus wants, the truth of sin and salvation. Go back to that truth. Go back to the truth of his word, that which you have been taught from the beginning, God's word front to back, especially the the hope of the gospel. And he says, remember what you have received, remember what you heard, and then he says, keep it. That word keep it means to conform your practice to it, not the other way around. You see, we are to conform our lives to God's word, not conform God's word to our lives. If your manner of living runs contrary to what God's word says, guess who's wrong? You are. If, if, if you say, I wanna live this way, and God's word says, no, that's sin, you're the one that's wrong, not God's word. It's God's truth. His truth is safe. His truth is secure. His truth is trustworthy. It's right. His word is the answer and the hope to all life and eternity. And that's why the devil and the world work so hard to dilute it and to tear it down and to twist it and to change it. And so verse three, he says, then repent. Repent. And we know that word, right? Make that 180 degree turn. Turn away from the sin and the living and turn back to God. I believe the context here is to turn to God for the first time. (laughs) Turn to God really, for reals. If you've been living as a Christian in name only, if you've been depending on the fact that maybe, well, my mom and dad were Christians, that's enough, right? Or the fact that, well, I go to church and I own a Bible and I sometimes read it, that's enough, right? If you've been changing or ignoring parts of God's truth and the gospel, um, the parts that you don't agree with, the parts that make it easier for the world to, 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 to love you instead of changing your beliefs to align with God's truth, if the unsaved world has nothing critical to say about your Christian life and the beliefs that you live and hold, you just may have a reputation for being alive, but you are really dead. And in the context of this letter, I believe what he's saying is you don't really know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You haven't come to that point yet. He doesn't know you. And plain church is not enough to find salvation and forgiveness and the hope of heaven. It's coming to Jesus Christ, believing he is God, accepting his sacrifice for you on the cross, putting faith in that. That's salvation, and so he says repent. Now the tragedy of remaining complacent in a, in a lifeless and a dead faith is, is, like I said a few times, thinking you're saved when you're not. Verse three, when he says, if you're not alert, I will come like a thief and you have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. This is language very reminiscent um, of what Paul wrote in Thessalonians speaking of the rapture of the church. 
Speaking of the time when Jesus is gonna come and to take his church out of this world as he then begins to pour out judgment upon the world for the rejection of him. He says, be ready, be ready, be alert. That kind of language is all over the New Testament, right? Be ready. Be ready when he comes, and, and, and don't be in a place where you're gonna be full of shame when he comes and regret, and for this church specifically, he's like, hey, I'm gonna show up and take my people, which you aren't a part of. He says, be ready. It's said that the people of Sardis didn't pay attention to the tremors before that earthquake in AD 17, and guess what, surprise! King Croetius didn't uh, pay attention. He ignored the vulnerability of a citadel and he thought he was safe. Surprise! God is trying to get someone's attention this morning, I firmly believe. I don't know who you are, if you're in the room or watching online. But I believe God is speaking to you and he's saying, wake up. Wake up. He's saying, I love you. And I don't want you to miss the boat. Please wake up, stop sleeping at the post, stop playing church, stop depending on your history, stop depending on your parents' faith, stop depending on your activities. Well, no, you you need to be saved. You need to submit your life to me so that I could forgive you and change you. And he says, otherwise you'll miss the opportunity when I come for those who know me. Verse four, he says, but you do have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes, and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes. How wonderful, right? There's always a remnant. But I want you to notice there, he says, a few people. (laughs) A few people. You go back to the letter of Pergamum. He said, you have some there holding to false teaching. Kind of the idea of like, most of you are doing good, some of you are doing, doing wrong. Then you get to Thyatira, and he just basically says, look, you guys are tolerating this woman Jezebel. And you kind of get the idea in the language that it's almost like a 50-50 thing at that point. Now he gets here to Sardis, and what does he say? There's only a few of you who haven't defiled your clothes. Most of you are dead. And so then he uses this language, walk with me in white because they're worthy and all who aren't defiled will be dressed in white clothes. And you know, these, these pictures of the white and the white wool and all this, we've discussed this in the past. It's a picture of purity. It's a picture of salvation. It's a picture of being washed clean by the blood of the lamb. You know, in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, it says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. I exult in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and wrapped me in a robe of righteousness. It's that washing us clean the Bible talks about when we give our life to the Lord. That we are spotless and blameless because of of what he's done. And and I think it's a picture that they would understand though because remember Sardis was, was well known for this clothing industry and this wool industry, right? Well known for for uh, um, carpets and rugs and clothing and all that came from the wool. And so he's like, look, you wanna talk about clean clothes? Those who know me, those who haven't defiled their clothes, they will be pure. They will be spotless. But I don't want you to miss here the idea in, in all of this language. Jesus is the one who dresses us in the white clothes. We come to him in faith and say, please God, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Salvation is a work of God. It's not a work of effort or tradition or reputation. It's a work of God. 
And works without a relationship go nowhere because the Bible says our best works are at best filthy rags, stained, impure. And so then he goes on to say the one who conquers, the one who is victorious will be dressed in white, right? But victorious over what? Well, he says it there. You have a few people who have not defiled their clothes. That word defiled there means to soil something with dirt and grime. It's really interesting in my, in my study of the background of Sardis and stuff, one of the other things that Sardis was known for at the time of this letter was religious inclusivity. Much like uh, what Pergamum and Thyatira were being pressured into, right? You guys have the exclusive claims of Christ and, and you know, that, that's fine for you over there, but you know, participate in the pagan rituals and participate in the temples. And in Pergamum, they were like, well, maybe we could find a way to rectify the, or, or reconcile the two. In Thyatira, it was like, well, I know it's wrong, but if it protects my job and my career, my bottom line, sure, I'll lie, cheat, and steal. I'll go do the things that God doesn't want me to do. But here in Sardis, it was a pressure to just like, can't we just all get along? And the reason I bring that up is because there's archaeological evidence that, that the whole place was very religiously, we're all the same. Let's all just get together. In, uh, next to that bathhouse that we saw earlier, there was a synagogue that's been um, unearthed, and it's one of the largest synagogues in the ancient world. It's said to hold, um, it's either 100 or 1,000 people, which either one is a lot for the time. And uh, it's just very beautiful. It's been, it's been largely restored. But in that synagogue, there's a couple things there that, that um, give us this idea that the people there in their religious living blended everything together. One of them was in the temples of the synagogue. The Jewish leadership and the Jews that were part of that synagogue, they would often write their names, their Hebrew names on these pillars. Well, in this particular synagogue in Sardis, the Hebrew names are written in Greek, which is highly, highly, highly unusual. But it's a pointing to the fact they're like, we're gonna assimilate with the culture. The other thing is there's a, like an offering altar in the synagogue where they would, you know, um, do their readings and all, all of that, but on the side of this altar, carved on the side of this altar is the Roman imperial eagle. And it's not something that was carved after the fact. It's clear that it was carved as a part of the construction of this altar. So in the Jewish synagogue there, their altar, their pulpit, whatever you want to call it, the front of their church, carved on the side of it is the Roman imperial eagle. It all points to this idea that, that you know, let's just all get along together. One of the other things is in the marketplace. They, they found this marketplace, they have all these stalls, and they found a stall that has a Christian cross carved into the front, right next to one that has the Jewish star, and so on and so forth. And, and those carvings were indicative of, of the owner of this particular shop was Christian. The interesting thing is at the time, especially under the persecution that the Christians were starting to go over, and we saw this in Smyrna, and we saw this in Ephesus and other places, you couldn't even go into the marketplace unless you took the incense and paid homage to Caesar. They wouldn't even let you in the marketplace. And yet here in Sardis, we see that someone was so welcomed into the marketplace that they even had their cross carved on the front of their, their stall, welcomed in. We know Jesus is very exclusive. He's always been exclusive. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the only way, right? There is no other. That exclusivity is what was under attack in the early church and it's been under attack ever since and it's under attack today. Why do you keep saying it's only Jesus, right? Why can't your God and Allah be the same person? We all worship God. 
We just have different ways of getting there. What, what, what's wrong with that? When Jesus says, I am the only way, what he's saying is, I'm the right way, and all other ways are wrong. Very exclusive. A very unpopular stance to take in the world today. Three times so far in these letters, Jesus has referred to other ways of worship as of Satan, right? You had those who were the synagogue of Satan. You had those that were where Satan's throne is. You had those giving in to the so-called secrets of Satan. And so in Pergamum, it was maybe it's okay to participate. In Thyatira, it was willful corruption. I know it's wrong, but I'm gonna do it anyways as long as it protects my bottom line. But here in Sardis, it wasn't let's remain exclusive while trying to acclimate to the culture. The problem with the Sardis church was, hey, why don't we just bail on the exclusive parts of Christianity altogether? Every God is equally true to those who believe in him. Let's just adopt that. And when they did that, they killed the message of the gospel. They killed the power. Jesus was no longer distinct. He was no longer different. He was no longer unique in his person and his purpose. Jesus didn't come to collaborate with the religious systems of the world. He came to conquer them. Jesus came to conquer them and to rescue those lost to and deceived by them. And when we try and blend things in, we run the risk of the sins of these churches. So the defilement of the church was the soiling of their Christianity by staining the truth of God's word and his message with what was false. Ultimately altering the Christian claims of those who came before him and the success that they were living and depending on, still riding on the coattails of historical ministerial success, but now diluting the truth embracing progressive, anti-biblical ideas. We don't see that today, do we? Not at all. (laughs) Verse five, but the one who conquers his tendency, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and before his angels. You know, those who embrace the whole truth of God and acknowledge sin and salvation as defined by his word, those who acknowledge the reality of their sin and the fact that they've broke God's law as defined by his word, who lean on nothing else but Christ for forgiveness and salvation, not history, not tradition, not activities, not whether or not the unsaved world is happy with you or not, not reputation that doesn't line up with the internal reality, but but Christ alone, him and him alone, will have a never-ending, never-erased, irrevocable salvation freely gifted by Jesus Christ. Their standing will be recorded in God's record. It will be affirmed by Christ himself. And as we see throughout other parts of scripture, you are then sealed and filled with the Holy Spirit of promise who empowers you to live a life of obedience to him because he's changed your heart and he's changed your nature. And it's all about Jesus. But if God is speaking to you this morning about the deadness of your faith, maybe about the emptiness of your Christianity, about the false hope you have in your activities, your participation, your duties that you fulfill. But all of that without a real relationship with Jesus Christ. If God is speaking to you this morning, wake up. Wake up and listen, as verse six says. You have ears to hear, so listen to what he is saying. It is a sad reality that there are churches in this world today that are full of people who don't even know Jesus. 
And those who do, we're called to live righteously and we're called to not compromise and dilute so that those in those churches and then those outside those churches who don't know Jesus will come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But if God is speaking to you today, this morning, today is your day. Today is the day of your salvation. I believe you're here on purpose. In a moment, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to, to be truly saved. Not for any other reason than a confession, repentance of your sin before God and acceptance and belief in who he is and faith in his work and his work alone. After that, we're, we as the body will be taking communion together here. But for those of you who are about to receive Christ today, I just want you to know this, that today, today is the day, the first day of the rest of your life. Let's pray. Father, God, we thank you so much for who you are. God, we thank you for your word, Lord, even the, the difficult parts, Lord. Sometimes there's parts of your word, Lord, that, that don't seem to be speaking to me because I know you, God. And we may be thinking thoughts like that, Lord, but every part of your word is applicable. Every part of your word is necessary. Every part of your word is beneficial and helpful and useful. And so, God, we hear you today. We receive what you're saying today, God. And Lord, I wanna take a moment right now to pray for those who, who may be the people you were describing today in this letter to Sardis. God, those who might be here today in our church because, well, that's what you do. You, you, you go to church and, and maybe they, they have their Bible with him and maybe they've been going through the motions and, and they think that because they do those things, that they have salvation, Lord. Yet they know that when they leave this building and go back to their life and back to their jobs and back to their, their, their living, there's nothing different in their life from those who don't know you at all. God, I pray for them, Lord, as you've been speaking them today, that today would be the day that they recognize what they're lacking, that they recognize the complacency or the deadness of their faith, God, and they would call out to you for salvation. So while we're praying right now, just heads bowed and eyes closed, I just wanna give you an opportunity in this room or online. If God has spoken to you this morning about your need for true, real salvation, that God maybe has spoken to you today about the things you've been trusting in that, that are everything but him, and you now know today that you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ himself, and you need that, you know you need that. I wanna pray with you. So if that's you in this room today, I just want you to raise your hand where you're seated and say, I need Jesus Christ this morning. I wanna have a relationship with him and, and nothing else. I wanna depend on him for my salvation. If you're watching online, wherever you're at, I obviously can't see you raising your hand, but I want you to pray with me this prayer that I'm about to pray. So anybody in this room, raise your hand so I could pray with you this morning to receive Christ, truly. All right, let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord. And for those of you that want to receive Christ today, I just, I just want you to pray these words with me. Say, Lord Jesus, I recognize that you are all I need. I recognize that you are God 
I recognize that I've sinned against you. And I recognize, Lord, that I've been trying to replace a relationship with you with activity, with reputation. But Lord, the reality in all of that is that I don't know you. I haven't been changed by you. And I ask you today to come into my life and to change me. Save me. Bring me into your family. Change my heart that I would want and desire to obey you. Lord, that I wouldn't look at coming to church or anything else as the thing that saves me, but rather an expression of my desire to love you and to grow in my walk with you. Thank you for loving me so much. Thank you for coming into my life. Thank you for speaking truth to me that I needed to hear. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, if you prayed that prayer this morning, you get to participate in communion with us, so congratulations. <laughs> communion is something we do as the body of Christ that is for Christians, believers. It is one of the ordinances we hear, we rep- uh, recognize at um, Hosanna, being baptism and communion are the two ordinances that we, that we participate in, and communion is this opportunity to look back on, on what our faith and what our Christianity is all about. That's what we do in communion. It's about remembering Christ, remembering him. All the activity and the participation and church and reading his word and serving and loving and all of that is good. All of that is healthy and vital, but none of it saves you. You're saved by Christ. Your parents or grandparents who raised you, knowing that, that doesn't save you. Getting along with the world, that doesn't save you. It's a personal faith in Christ, right? And we've come to that place as believers where we believed in Jesus Christ, God the Son, dying on the cross in our place. And we put our faith in that. We said, God, I put my faith in his work that I would be reconciled to you. And communion is where we get to remember that, right? John three sixteen. for God so loved the world in this way that he gave his only one, his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him would not perish but have eternal life complacency in regards to this truth and religion without relationship with God, it, it might make life easier temporally. It might make you feel better. But all of that without Jesus will lead to death spiritually. And communion, again, is that place where we get to remember what he did for us personally. The death he died, his resurrection, all of it and to remember how everything we then do in our faith and obedience to him is in response to and out of gratitude and thankfulness to him, not to earn his love, not to secure our salvation, but quite the opposite. And so everybody in the room, you should have gotten a communion cup. If anybody did not get one of these, please raise your hand really high. All right, we got everybody this time. Wonderful, all right, cool. so there's, there's a little thin plastic tab and a thicker plastic tab. If you guys will pull the thin plastic tab back very carefully, this will reveal the bread of the communion here. You know, when Jesus 
gave the bread to his disciples. He broke the bread and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he wanted us to remember that his body was broken. That he was the one that suffered the, the, the death and the torture. It was, and, and, but not only that, it was his sinless body. He never did anything wrong. He never sinned a single time. And yet he was punished for our sin. He took the full wrath of God. The full wrath of God for our sin and our unrighteousness. And it was a judgment that, quite honestly, we deserve. It's a judgment and a price that we should be paying for breaking God's law and violating as well, but he did it. Why? Because he loved you so much. He loved you so much. And when we think about the fact that he stepped into our place, he stepped into our place and suffered our punishment and paid our price, when we think about how that perfectly reconciled our relationship to God Almighty, our creator, it's a price we can never pay back. And he doesn't ask us to. He's not keeping a tab. He's not saying, you know, you haven't said enough Hail Marys yet to earn salvation, so I'm holding you out. He doesn't say that at all. He says, I paid the price already. Trust in that. Trust in that. And because he's done that, because he bled and he suffered and he died, he did it that we might be made whole, that we might be born again, that our spirit might go from being dead to alive. And not just that, that we would have life in here on this earth, but then we'd be promised eternity in heaven with him. Why? Because he paid the price. We need to reflect on that and remember that and say this is why we are saved. This is why we are the church. This is why we are his people. This is what saves us. This is the truth. This is the way to eternal life and nothing else will do. Pray with me now. Father, we remember, God, your broken body for us. Lord, it's so easy for us as, as, as people to want to put our faith in, in other things and things we do. It's so easy, Lord, for us to, to think because we've done this or done that, that that we've earned points and we've somehow leveled up on the scale of spirituality, Lord, but but... God, the reality is, is there's nothing we could ever do because the price was your perfect sinless body and none of us were without sin. You were the perfect sacrifice on the altar of atonement. And God, there's nothing we could ever do to, to, to earn this. And Lord, you don't ask us to. You just, you just say, trust in it and live according to that truth. So God, we say thank you. We say thank you for taking the wrath of God for our sin upon yourself. We say thank you for going through what you went through for us. And Lord, together here is the body of Christ. We remember your body given for us. Let's partake together. All right, for those of you in the room, if you very carefully pull back the thicker tab here, it'll reveal the juice here. You know, in communion, 
The Last Supper, Jesus then took the cup and he offered it to the disciples and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. He didn't want us to just remember the punishment we avoided, but he also wanted us to remember the white robes of righteousness that he clothed us with. He doesn't leave us in a place of saying, yeah, you're you're still a guilty sinner, worthy of death, but I paid the penalty. He says, no, I've adopted you into my family and washed you clean and you were spotless and perfect as my child. How amazing is that? And when we think about that, how foolish is is it for us to think, oh, I went to church this week, I'm saved now. What? (laughs) I read a chapter today. I'm saved now. It's like, no, no, no. Hold on for a second. Think of how wretched you were. There's nothing we can do. But he didn't just pay the price. He then washes us clean. How wonderful. How beautiful. How set free we are. And he wanted us to remember that state, that clean state, that unblemished record, that restored fellowship. Again, for a people who didn't earn it, who don't deserve it. And our complete work, our complete work before him is to remember what we have received and heard, the gospel of Jesus Christ. To remember the truth of sin and the truth of salvation, the true cost of our redemption, the truth that he died and rose again, the truth that we are saved because of his work, his shed blood, and nothing else. To live in that, to trust that, to move forward in that to share that, to preach that, to live that. Because we've been cleansed by his shed blood, we are people who eagerly await his coming. I look forward to him returning to take me home because I know I'm his adopted child. Why? Because I'm changed. I never wanted to obey God before I was saved. Now I do. People who knew me in high school, they're like, well, that's a miracle. And we all have that same story, don't we? People who knew us before look at us and go, wow, that's a miracle. And you're like, amen, it is a miracle. And he wants to save you too. And how do we express our gratitude for him, clothing us with his robes of righteousness, his garment of salvation? Well, we do it just by loving him first, foremost. Living for him only and nothing else not trying to earn our salvation by any works we do, but instead knowing we deserve nothing and yet we've received everything because he loved us so much. Father, we thank you, God, for your word. We thank you for your work. God, we know that your body was was just brutalized for us, taking the full wrath of God on our sin, but Lord, you shed your blood to cleanse us. Lord, that it was your perfect sinless blood that brought this spotless condition into our lives, Lord, because we put our faith in that, that that you were poured out for us, that you were the offering for us, you were the sacrifice for us. And that God, today, we are pardoned criminals, yes. But then you look at us as your adopted children. God, you don't see error, you don't see wrong, you don't see anything, Lord, but you just love us because you love us because you love us, even when we've done nothing to warrant that. 
And God, you look at us as your kids and you're so proud of us and you're just proud because you're proud because you're proud even though we haven't done anything to be proud of, Lord. But it's because you're our Father in heaven who's drawn us out of the pit. We thank you for that, God. I ask, Lord, that each one of us would walk in that truth, Lord, walk in that freedom to understand that yes, we are wretched sinners, but we are children of God. And what great manner of love has been bestowed upon us that we would be called that. We love you so much. Let's partake together. Well, I know we had a lot to get through, so I appreciate you all hanging in there. I just pray God would continue to speak and move through his people. I'm excited for what God's doing in our church. I'm excited for what God's doing in the church, and, and I'm just looking forward to what's next. I know as we remain in that place of recognizing our desperate need for God, God is gonna use us, God is gonna mold us, God is gonna shape us, and amen to that. Let's close today with worshiping him and praising his holy name. Amen? All right, God bless you guys.